Kev. We're reading from 2 Samuel 16, starting at verse 15. Um, while you're turning uh, to that passage in your Bibles, just to sort of remind us, recap where we're up to um, as we work our way through the second half of 2 Samuel. David is king, but he has fled um, after his son Absalom has mounted a coup against him. Uh, and this passage features two, uh, of, two advisors who were advisors to David. Uh, and the first one is Ahithophel. He has defected to become uh, Absalom's advisor. And the second is Hushai, who wants to remain faithful to David, but uh, David sends him to Absalom as a double agent. So he's posing to be uh, loyal to Absalom. Hope that makes sense. And Let's read uh, from verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Then Hushai, the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king, long live the king. Absalom said to Hushai, So this is the love you show your friend? If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? Hushai said to Absalom, no, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I served your father, so I will serve you. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give us your advice, what should we do? Ahithophel answered, sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father and the hands of everyone with you will be, be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror and then all the people with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. But Absalom said, Summon also Hushai the archite, so we can hear what he has to say as well. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice, should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, The advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men, they are fighters, and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there's been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a fighter and that those with him are brave. So I advise you, let all Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you, with you yourself leading them into battle. 
Then we will attack him wherever he may be found, and we will fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it down to the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. Hushai told Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Ahithophel has advised Absalom and the elders of Israel to do such and such, but I have advised them to do so and so. Now send a message at once and tell David, do not spend the night at the fords in the wilderness, cross over without fail, or the king and all his people with him will be swallowed up. Jonathan and Ahimaaz were staying at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and inform them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they could not risk being seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So the two of them left at once and went to the house of a man in Baharim. He had a well in his courtyard, and they climbed down into it. His wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, Where is Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman answered them, They crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the two climbed out of the well and went to inform King David. They said to him, Set out and cross the river at once. Ahithophel has advised such and such against you. So David and all the people with him set out and crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Evening, everyone. Again, if you're new or visiting, I want to add my welcome to, uh, to Gav's welcome earlier. I'm delighted you've chosen to uh, join in our night congregation tonight. My name's Ben. It's my joy and privilege tonight to uh, be opening the Word of God for us. Uh, so please keep your Bibles open at that passage, big one, uh, beginning 2 Samuel 16. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you speak to us in your word, the Bible. I pray that you'd help us now uh, to, uh, to concentrate, to, to take to heart what it is that you would have us learn, that we will become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus. It's in his name we ask. Amen. As Jesus was hanging on the cross and dying, we're told in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46... That about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to guess this is something that if you've been a Christian for a while, you're probably familiar with. Uh, it's known by theologians as the cry of dereliction. And it's the moment where, for the first and only time in all of eternity that the most perfect, loving relationship that ever has or will exist between God the Father and God the Son underwent this profound and dreadful rift 
beyond imagination and comprehension, so much so that theologians say that on the cross, Jesus descended into hell. We reflect it poetically in a lot of ways. Uh, one example is when we sing that song, How, how Deep the Father's Love for Us, we, we have that line, How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away. That is, God the Father turns away from God the Son. So deep and profound is God's love that it was while we, we, you and I, were still sinners that Christ underwent such hell for us. And yet, when you spend a few minutes thinking about that momentous event, event, you can come up with an alarming theological dilemma. See, we know that God, the true and living God, the God of the Bible, is eternally unchanging. He's the same God yesterday, today and forever. And that God happens to be innately, intrinsically relational. He's God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And yet, when Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? There was no heavenly answer. If God the Father turned his face away from God the Son, doesn't that mean there's been some sort of division within the Trinity? If our understanding of what happened at the cross and our understanding of who God is, if those two things can't fit together, then we've got a big problem. Either God's not God or we're not saved. Now, of course, as I'm sure you'd all guess, they do absolutely fit together. The Father did turn His face away. He did forsake the Son and yet the Trinity remained unified and undivided. The question that as Christians that we'd be very wise to have an answer for is how? How does that work? How did God remain undivided at the very point where the Son experienced true forsakenness from His Father? It's a good thing to have in the kit bag. And so that's why I'm delighted to say that a significant part of the answer to that question, would you believe, has to do with what God was teaching us from a series of events that took place around a thousand years before Jesus experienced that God-forsakenness that you and I, thankfully, will never have to. As we re-enter the saga of David's downfall in uh, the second part of 2 Samuel, David's son, Absalom, uh, as Jono rightly pointed out, is in the process of forcefully taking over David's throne. And David and his men, they're therefore off in exile. David has sent one of his loyal followers, this cool guy named Hushai, to pretend to be an advisor to Absalom, but all the while actually being a spy for David. And when Hushai first meets Absalom as king, inverted commas, king, he actually deceives him. And he deceives him in the most awesome way possible. Do you know how Hushai deceives Absalom? I'll tell you how. By telling him the truth. That's how he deceives Absalom. You see, he speaks true words, but he knows Absalom now has so much pride that he can't actually hear the words properly. He approaches him, verse uh, 16, and uh, it says, Then Hushai the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king! Long live the king! Now, he's, he's walked up to Absalom, right? But you and I know from the previous part of this, this passage that Hushai only recognises David as king. But he also knows that it's not going to cross Absalom's mind to think that he's referring to anyone else other than himself. And so what Absalom wants to know then is why Hushai 
has changed sides. Why, Hushai has stopped following David and supposedly now following him. And so, verse 17, Absalom said to Hushai, so this is a love you show your friend? If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? See, Absalom doesn't ask if David is your king. Why didn't you go with him? He just says, if, if he's your friend, which shows us that when Absalom heard Hushai saying, long live the king, he figured that was for himself. But how does Hushai answer the, the obvious uh, big question about why he hasn't sided with David, whether David's king or friend? Well, astoundingly, again, he speaks the truth. But again, Absalom mishears it on account of his pride. Verse 18... Hushai said to Absalom, no, and, and this no is really a no, I haven't abandoned David, but of course it's going to be heard by Absalom as, no, I, I was right to reject David, why? Continuing verse 18, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people and by all the men of Israel, his I will be and I will remain with him. Now this makes Hushai the first person in the story so far to suggest that Absalom has been chosen by God to be the king. Of course, Hushai is not suggesting that, but that's how it gets heard. And that would be a very, very good reason for Hushai to say, see you later, David, I'm now on team Absalom. And then he sweetens the deal by asking a rhetorical question for which Absalom would assume a positive answer but Hushai actually intends a negative answer. Verse 19, and for this one I'm using the Holman because it gets it much better. Furthermore, says Hushai, whom will I serve if not his son? As I served in your father's presence, I will also serve in yours. Translation, just as I served David in David's presence, so now I will serve David, in your presence. At no point has Hushai been dishonest. He simply banks on Absalom, listening with proud rather than humble ears. It's a good little thing for us to take, take seriously, isn't it? How do we listen to the Word of God? Is it with proud ears that kind of make us miss the truth or, or, or with humility? In his loyalty to David, Hushai models what it means for a disciple, for a follower to be shrewd as a snake, yet innocent as a dove. Poor Absalom, he really mustn't have paid attention to what Yahweh had been making clear over and over through the prophets. It's not the tall, handsome, with his ridiculous amount of hair, now eldest son, that God's automatically going to choose. God doesn't look at the outward appearance and he chooses not as man chooses but he chooses in accordance with his own heart. If Absalom knew that then perhaps he wouldn't have been so blind to Hushai's true albeit very carefully chosen words. Nonetheless now that Hushai is on board Absalom needs to plan the next step in his offensive against David. He turns to his main advisor Ahithophel and Ahithophel's advice for the next step absolutely seals the divide. It, it, it makes the really big rift between Absalom and David to the point of almost no return. So from verse 21, Ahithophel, 
Here's his advice. He answered, sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Uh, There's no mistaking this. This is a really super bold, rub it in your face, emphatic way of saying to everyone, ha ha, I'm the king and sucked in David, you are not. Obviously what happens here is such a mess of wrongness. It's what's the expression? It's wrong on so many levels. The power imbalance that reduces women into sex slaves, the breaking of the Levitical law regarding who someone can have sexual relations with, the existence of concubines in the first place, really. The fact that it is so cold and calculated and actually serves the interests of Ahithophel as much as Absalom, because you see, if Absalom does something so in your face as this, it means there's no chance that he can back out and put David back on the throne. And for Ahithophel, that's a big deal, because if for some reason Absalom did back out and David got back on the throne, let's just say that Ahithophel's probably out of a job, to to say the least. But the really damning thing, the really nasty thing about this, this horrible deed is that even though Ahithophel and Absalom are doing this horrible deed for their own sinful and political reasons, it's also something that the Lord promised would happen and that it would happen as a consequence for David's abusive acts of murder and adultery that, what do you know, started on that same rooftop. Many of you probably remember from back in chapter 12, after David's great sin, the Lord said to David, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. See, whilst evil is never the desire of God, evil is never God's desire, it is, of course, something that nonetheless falls under his sovereign control and is used in accordance with his plans, in this case, to devastating effect. And with that, we come to point three, for which I'm comfortable enough in my masculinity to have entitled Pride and Prejudice. In order to both show himself as a valuable advisor and, really, to help out David, Hushai continues to rely on appealing to Absalom's pride. After hearing that Ahithophel really is a great advisor, who happens to be very prejudiced against David and advises on the basis of self-interest, we're told that Ahithophel advises Absalom to strike now while the iron's hot. Kill David, just David, that's all you've got to do. Kill him and his guys will come over and they'll join team Absalom. And uh, God himself will later on call that good advice. God says that's good advice. And chapter 17 and verse 4, Ahithophel's plan seemed good to Absalom and his men. But there's this awesome little proverb in the book of Proverbs that I've always liked, um, partly because I like that movie... I think it's called Primal Fear, where the dude gets off a, a, a psycho killer. And yeah, anyway, um, it, if you know the movie, you'll get this proverb even more. It says, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines, until you hear another point 
of you. And uh, I think we have a lovely little example of that here in the text. Ahithophel's advice certainly was good, but Absalom then asks for Hushai's advice, and Hushai, being a brilliant strategist, comes up with a plan that both appeals to Absalom's pride and also buys loads of time for David. So from verse 7, Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel has given is not good this time. You know your father and his men, they are fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Translation, David is desperate, he's on the run and so he's going to fight dirty. He's going to be like the mama bear who has no concern for a life and he's just wild and aggro, right? That's a dangerous person to, to try and take on. And he's also clever, so he's not going to be easy to find. Continuing from verse 9, even now, says Hushai, he's hidden in a cave or some other place. If he should attack your troops first, whoever hears about it will say, there has been a slaughter among the troops who follow Absalom. Then even the bravest soldier whose heart is like the heart of a lion will melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a fighter, and that those with him brave. In other words, Absalom, your reputation, mate, is on the line. And if there's one thing you can always bank on when it comes to those who are proud or have even narcissistic tendencies, is that they are extremely overprotective of their reputation. And so now, Hushai is perfectly poised to give the glorious climax of his proposal, a proposal that makes Absalom the absolute star of the show. So verse 11, he says, so I advise you, let all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, be gathered to you and with you, yourself, leading them into battle. Get the biggest audience with you yourself leading them into battle. Verse 12, then when we attack him, wherever he may be found, we'll fall on him as dew settles on the ground. Neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and will drag it down the valley until not so much as a pebble is left. Kind of like what happened once upon a time to the city of Jericho, you know, not one stone on top of the other. You're going to have this awesome victory Mr. King Absalom. Now, the alarm bells should have been ringing at maximum volume for Absalom when Hushai said that Absalom is going to lead Israel into battle. By now, they've got, by my calculation, about a million examples that have taught them that they need God to lead them into battle, inquiring of the Lord, bringing the Ark of the Covenant, that's having the Lord go before them to rout the enemies. That's the way that all the successful battles of Israel have been fought up to this point. Hushai's proposal is kind of putting Absalom in the place of God. And if there's one thing you can bank on with a proud or a narcissistic person is that they are always predictable in one direction they will always go for the option that they perceive as giving them the greater reputation. And so we can't avoid this one. Verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than that of Ahithophel. But 
Ahithophel's prejudice and Absalom's pride and ignorance, they were the penultimate reason that Hushai won the day. The ultimate reason, the final reason, is actually given in the second half of verse 14, where we're told, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And I've used the ESV uh, translation there because God's name, Yahweh, which our Bibles translate capital L-O-R-D, actually does occur in the original twice in this verse. And it's the only time in this whole section where we're told explicitly of God's intentions. It's the only time where God's immediately on the foreground. And that's why it's the key verse for this section. The wording here corresponds with what David had prayed a while back in chapter 1531. He'd prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And then just a few verses after he prayed that, when he sent Hushai to serve Absalom, he said that the purpose for that was, you, Hushai, will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. And that is exactly what God is saying his the Lord's intentions are here in verse 14. To put it simply, as David is being punished by God for his great sins, even then, the Lord is very clearly and very unambiguously listening to David. He's treating the king, the real king, as his son, which is what God said, I'll be a father and he'll be my son. The logic of the text, in fact, shows us emphatically that even as his chosen king is being punished, the Lord listens to his anointed and, of course, both for good and ill, always keeps his promises. David can undergo God's punishment for his own sin and yet be heard and be acted on behalf of by God. And uh, I'm certain that Jesus himself knew this to be the case when he underwent the punishment for sin. Of course, not his sin, but ours. And as he hung on the cross, he cried out to the Father who did forsake the Son. But that happened precisely because he did listen to Jesus. See, though Jesus rightly dreaded the cup of God's holy wrath being poured out upon him, he had, nonetheless, shortly beforehand, prayed to his heavenly Father, asking that the Father's will be done. Jesus knew he was asking God to be forsaken. And whilst in the midst of bearing that punishment for your sins and mine, God the Father did listen to God the Son, precisely because he turned his back on him and forsook him. In fact... You read elsewhere in the scriptures that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. The unity of the Trinity, of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is actually shown as the Son cries out, Why have you forsaken me? Together, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were in agreement that God should forsake God such that sinners like you and I might have the penalty for our sin removed. To warm night and it's daylight savings. You all still awake? Halfway there, good. 
Final point, point four, the true people of God. Now, David, being the clever guy that he was, had put this cool chain of spies in place, right, from Absalom all the way down to him, such that Hushai could, if he wanted, get messages through that chain back to David. So Hushai told the priests, two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, their team David, who in turn got a female servant to bring the message to Jonathan and Ahimaaz, who would in turn bring it to David, right? That's the way it's got to be if you're basically doing a spy mission, right? This is a secret service, one, one end to the other. But around the time that Jonathan and Ahimaaz were getting the message from, from that female servant, some young bloke, who's clearly loyal to Absalom, saw them, right? They got busted. And that meant that Jonathan and Ahimaaz themselves had to go into hiding just for a, for a little bit so that they wouldn't get busted and they could finally get the message to David. And the little incident about how Jonathan and Ahimaaz had to go into hiding has been recorded for us here in this passage. So that we might be assured of who the real people of God are, yes, and also what the real people of God are like, generally speaking, to teach us something about ourselves. Uh, from verse 18, I'll show you how this works. From verse 18, so the two of them, that's Jonathan and Ahimaaz, left at once and went to the house of a man in Bahurim. He had a well in his courtyard and they climbed down into it. His wife, and it's important that it's the wife, his wife took a covering and spread it out over the opening of the well and scattered grain over it. Even that detail is really important. Covering, scattering grain. No one knew anything about it. When Absalom's men came to the woman at the house, they asked, where are Ahimaaz, Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman answered them, they crossed over the brook. The men searched but found no one, so they returned to Jerusalem. Now surely someone could yell it out here and tell me, two spies serving the leader of Israel, hidden by a woman who happens to live in a town between Jerusalem and, would you believe, Jericho. What should this remind us of? Someone tell me. Jericho, yeah, give me more. Israel going, taking over, and, and who'd they send in first? Anyone remember? Two spies, yeah, who said Rahab? Well done, yeah, yeah, Rahab was the woman that hid the two spies. It's almost like the same thing, just like version 2.0, right? And what happened eventually to Jericho after those spies had a successful mission? Well, Jericho gets ripped to shreds, right? Not one stone left on top of another. Kind of what Hushai was saying would be the outcome for Absalom, which we know he doesn't really want to happen. See, we've already been told that the Lord has ordained to bring disaster upon Absalom. And now we're given a very strong, not very subtle hint that God will ensure that those who side with Absalom will also meet their demise. In fact, the cards already start falling by the end of today's section. The report gets delivered to David such that he does retreat a little further across the Jordan just in case Ahithophel's advice was heeded, which of course we know it was not. And then verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown, put his house in order and then hanged himself. Who does this remind you of? Judas. He backed the wrong horse as well. And so, 
Ahithophel died and was buried in his father's tomb. And by the way, if you don't know this, hanging in, in, in Jewish thought and in the Levitical law kind of is associated with being under the curse of God, right? So these spies, like the goodies who are going in, this guy who sides with Absalom, kind of like the Judas. The walls are already starting to crumble for those who are, yes, in the land, but clearly are not the true people of God. And they've had every warning. God made it clear through his prophets time and time again that you cannot stand against the Lord's anointed. Instead of opposing him, the only sensible course of action is taking refuge in him. As a matter of fact, if you're really clever, you might remember from the promise that the Lord gave to King David uh, about how he'll always have one of his descendants on his throne. He said, David, when you lie down and sleep with your fathers, i.e. when you're dead, is when I raise up another one to succeed you and he will be my son and I will be his father. Well, Absalom knows that David's still alive. So when Hushai came and said, the one the Lord has chosen, if he had listened to God, he would have, been, he would have known, that's rubbish. It, it, as long as David's alive, I can't, I can't be. No, it can't be known that I'm chosen. He just didn't listen to Yahweh. So, of course, the first logical implication that really is the same in David's day as it, as it ought to be in ours is that you've got to make sure you're following the leader that the Lord has actually chosen. Now, I know, I suspect most of us uh, say that we do. We know that the Lord has chosen the Lord Jesus Christ and he's the one that God's put in charge. But I don't know everyone here. It may be the case that you are someone who's not yet convinced that you need to throw in your lot with Jesus. Uh, if that's you, here's what I want to say to you. God has shown the whole world absolutely and surely that Jesus is the King. He has chosen Jesus to rule over all people and all things. He has proven it by raising Jesus from the dead. And Jesus has already defeated the rival authorities and he's already even ascended at his throne. The only reason that he's kind of waiting before doing the cleanup effort is that he's so patient and kind, he's giving more people opportunity to repent before it's too late. Uh, my imagination's a bit crazy sometimes, and as I was reflecting on this stuff in the week, I had this weird little, you know, thing in the mind, I don't know why. I just imagine for a minute, what if David, right, somehow had the power to miraculously raise people from the dead? Like, you know, like the king that he, he points to, Jesus. Well, imagine that, right? Once David gets back in power, which of course he will, imagine that those two guys, right, Jonathan and Ahimaaz, imagine one of them didn't make it, right? Jonathan got the message to David, but poor Ahimaaz, he ends up dead in the well for some reason, right? David's now back in power and he's, oh, Jonathan, I can see, where's Ahimaaz? Oh, sorry, man, he was serving you, but he died on the way. What would David do? He'd be like, oh, dude, make him alive again, come and enjoy my kid. What would he do for Ahithophel, though? That guy who got my son to sleep with my concubines and try. I think I might leave him where he is, thank you very much. Leave him buried and cursed under God. Well, that's David, how much more so Jesus? If you're here and you don't yet side with Jesus, this isn't some philosophical pie-in-the-sky kind of thing, this is reality. Jesus will at any moment, be it today or be it in a thousand years, Jesus will at any moment return 
to judge the living and the dead. It's only those who recognise him as Lord now, those who are on Team Jesus now, who will get to enjoy his kingdom for all eternity. If you're not yet on Team Jesus, it's urgent that you repent, that you say, I'm going to stop living in opposition to God's chosen king, who is so clearly chosen, I mean, you know, he raised him from the dead, for goodness sake. I'm going to stop living in opposition to him and I'm going to put my trust in him. I'm going to be Team Jesus from here on in. Lastly, for us, for the church, well, be assured yet again that it always makes sense to suffer for and with the one that the Lord has chosen. It can't have been easy, even for a smart guy like Hushai, having to be careful with your every word, knowing that getting found out could result in death. And we've got brothers and sisters, not here, but elsewhere in the world, for whom that's kind of reality. A lot of Christians have to live on a tightrope. They want to stand for King Jesus, and they will when push comes to shove. They've got to be so careful how they do it. And it wouldn't have been easy for being someone who's on the road with David, following him out into the wilderness, not knowing whether an army's going to attack today or tomorrow, not knowing whether we're going to be on this side of the Jordan or that, right? Well, so it is with each and every Christian. None of us are immune to suffering. The Lord says he's going to make us more like him, and that almost means for certain there'll be some level of suffering. We don't know where Jesus is going to call us, but we know he's the king who had nowhere to lay his head. We will expect discomfort, to say the least, as followers of Jesus. But he himself knows exactly what that's like. He himself knows what it is that you and I go through. And as surely as he has been, and will soon seem to have been vindicated, well, so too we, who are on Team Jesus, will soon be vindicated. Thankfully, as he was God-forsaken, you and I shall never be God-forsaken. It makes sense to stick through thick and thin on Team Jesus. And this is just yet another wonderful encouragement from the Scriptures to do that. Let me uh, lead us in prayer. And it's up to Gav if we have question time tonight or not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who underwent hell on the cross that we might not have to. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you that you make it clear, albeit with a very pale reflection, in the life of King David, that those who follow your anointed one are those who stand firm in the end. Those who continue in their opposition against your king will only ever always meet their demise in the end. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here tonight who as yet is not a follower of the Lord Jesus that might please you by the power of your spirit to convict them of the truth, to bring them into your kingdom, that they might enjoy everlasting life with him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.